Chapter Six, Part Six, of the Stones of Venice, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Stones of Venice, Volume Two, by John Ruskin. The Nature of Gothic, Part Six. The forms of arch thus obtained, with a pointed projection called a cusp on each side, must forever be delightful to the human mind, as being expressive of the utmost strength and permanency obtainable with a given mass of material. But it was not by any such process of reasoning, nor with any reference to laws of construction, that the cusp was originally invented. It is merely the special application to the arch of the great ornamental system of foliation, or the adaptation of the forms of leafage, which has been above insisted upon as the principal characteristic of Gothic naturalism. This love of foliage was exactly proportioned, in its intensity, to the increase of strength in the Gothic spirit. In the Southern Gothic it is soft leafage that is most loved, in the northern thorny leafage and if we take up any northern illuminated manuscript of the great gothic time we shall find every one of its leaf ornaments surrounded by a thorny structure laid round it in gold or in colour sometimes apparently copied faithfully from the prickly development of the root of the leaf in the thistle running along the stems and branches exactly as the thistle leaf does along its own stem and with sharp spines proceeding from the points, as in figure 16. At other times, and for the most part in work in the 13th century, the golden ground takes the form of pure and severe cusps, sometimes enclosing the leaves, sometimes filling up the forks of the branches, as in the example figure 1, plate 1, volume 3, passing imperceptibly from the distinctly vegetable condition in which it is just as certainly representative of the thorn as other parts of the design are of the bud leaf and fruit into the crests on the necks or the membranous sails of the wings of serpents dragons and other grotesques as in figure seventeen and into rich and vague fantasies of curvature among which however the pure cusped system of the pointed arch is continually discernible not accidentally but designedly indicated and connecting itself with the literally architectural portions of the design the system then of what is called foliation whether simple as in the cusped arch or complicated as in tracery rose out of this love of leafage not that the form of the arch is intended to imitate a leaf, but to be invested with the same characters of beauty which the designer had discovered in the leaf. Observe, there is a wide difference between the two intentions. The idea that large Gothic structure in arches and roofs was intended to imitate vegetation is, as above noticed, untenable for an instant in the front of facts, but the Gothic builder perceived that, in the leaves which he copied for his minor decorations, there was a peculiar beauty, arising from certain characters of curvature in outline, 
and certain methods of subdivision and of radiation in structure. On a small scale, in his sculptures and his missal painting, he copied the leaf or thorn itself. On a large scale, he adopted from it its abstract sources of beauty, and gave the same kinds of curvatures and the same species of subdivision to the outline of his arches, so far as was consistent with their strength, never in any single instance suggesting the resemblance to leafage by irregularity of outline, but keeping the structure perfectly simple, and, as we have seen, so consistent with the best principles of masonry, that in the finest Gothic design of arches, which are always single cusped, the cinquefoiled arch being licentious, though in early work often very lovely, it is literally impossible, without consulting the context of the building, to say whether the cusps have been added for the sake of beauty or of strength, nor, though in medieval architecture they were, I believe, assuredly first employed in mere love of their picturesque form, am I absolutely certain that their earliest invention was not a structural effort. For the earliest cusps with which I am acquainted are those used in the vaults of the great galleries of the Serapeum, discovered in 1850 by M. Maniette at Memphis, and described by Colonel Hamilton in a paper read in February last before the Royal Society of Literature. The roofs of its galleries were admirably shown in Colonel Hamilton's drawings, made to scale upon the spot, and their profile is a cusped round arch, perfectly pure and simple, but whether thrown into this form for the sake of strength or of grace, I am unable to say. It is evident, however, that the structural advantage of the cusp is available only in the case of arches on a comparatively small scale. If the arch becomes very large, the projections under the flanks must become too ponderous to be secure, and the suspended weight of stone would be liable to break off, and such arches are therefore never constructed with heavy cusps, but rendered secure by general mass of masonry, and what additional appearance of support may be thought necessary, sometimes a considerable degree of actual support, is given by means of tracery. Of what I stated in the second chapter of The Seven Lamps respecting the nature of tracery, I need repeat here only this much, that it began in the use of penetrations through the stonework of windows or walls, cut into forms which looked like stars when seen from within, and like leaves when seen from without. The name foil, or foi, being universally applied to the separate lobes of their extremities, and the pleasure received from them being the same as that which we feel in the triple, quadruple, or other radiated leaves of vegetation, joined with a perception of a severely geometrical order and symmetry. A few of the most common forms are represented, unconfused by exterior mouldings, in figure 18, and the best traceries are nothing more than close clusters of such forms, with mouldings following their outlines. The term foliated, therefore, is equally descriptive of the most perfect conditions, both of the simple arch and of the traceries by which, in later Gothic, it is filled, and this foliation is an essential character of the style. No Gothic is either good or characteristic which is not foliated either in its arches or apertures. Sometimes the bearing arches are foliated, 
and the ornamentation above composed of figure sculpture. Sometimes the bearing arches are plain, and the ornamentation above them is composed of foliated apertures. But the element of foliation must enter somewhere, or the style is imperfect, and our final definition of Gothic will, therefore, stand thus. Foliated architecture, which uses the pointed arch for the roof proper and the gable for the roof mask. And now there is but one point more to be examined, and we have done. Foliation, while it is the most distinctive and peculiar, is also the easiest method of decoration which Gothic architecture possesses, and, although in the disposition of the proportions and forms of foils, the most noble imagination may be shown, yet a builder without imagination at all, or any other faculty of design, can produce some effect upon the mass of his work by merely covering it with foolish foliation. Throw any number of crossing lines together at random, as in figure 19, and fill their squares and oblong openings with quatrefoils and cinquefoils and you will immediately have what will stand, with most people, for very satisfactory Gothic. The slightest possible acquaintance with existing forms will enable any architect to vary his patterns of foliation with as much ease as he would those of a kaleidoscope, and to produce a building which the present European public will think magnificent, though there may not be, from foundation to copying, one ray of invention or any other intellectual merit in the whole mass of it. But floral decoration and the disposition of mouldings require some skill and thought, and, if they are to be agreeable at all, must be verily invented or accurately copied. They cannot be drawn together at random without becoming so commonplace as to involve detection, and although, as I have just said, the noblest imagination may be shown in the disposition of traceries, there is far more room for its play and power when those traceries are associated with floral or animal ornament. And it is possible, a priori, that wherever true invention exists, such ornament will be employed in profusion. Now all Gothic may be divided into two vast schools, one early, the other late, of which the former, noble, inventive, and progressive, uses the element of foliation moderately, that of floral and figure sculpture decoration profusely. The latter, ignoble, uninventive, and declining, uses foliation immoderately, floral and figure sculpture subordinately. The two schools touch each other at that instant of momentous change, dwelt upon in the Seven Lamps, Chapter 2, a period later or earlier in different districts, but which may be broadly stated as the middle of the fourteenth century, both styles being, of course, in their highest excellence at the moment when they meet, the one ascending to the point of junction, the one declining from it, but at first not in any marked degree, and only showing the characters which justify its being above called generically ignoble, as its declension reaches steeper slope. Of these two great schools, the first uses foliation only in large and simple masses, and covers the minor members, cusps, etc., of that foliation with various sculpture. 
the latter decorates foliation itself with minor foliation and breaks its traceries into endless and lace-like subdivision of tracery a few instances will explain the difference clearly figure two plate twelve represents half of an eightfold aperture from salisbury where the element of foliation is employed in the larger disposition of the starry form but in the decoration of the cusp it has entirely disappeared and the ornament is floral but in figure one which is part of a fringe round one of the later windows in rouen cathedral the foliation is first carried boldly round the arch and then each cusp of it divided into other forms of foliation the two larger canopies of niches below figures five and six are respectively those seen at the flanks of the two uppermost examples of gabled gothic in figure ten page two hundred and thirteen those examples were there chosen in order to illustrate the distinction in the character of ornamentation which we are at present examining and if the reader will look back to them and compare their methods of treatment he will at once be enabled to fix that distinction clearly in his mind he will observe that in the uppermost the element of foliation is scrupulously confined to the bearing arches of the gable and of the lateral niches so that on any given side of the monument only three foliated arches are discernible all the rest of the ornamentation is bossy sculpture set on the broad marble surface on the point of the gable are set the shield and dog crest of the scholars with its bronze wings as of a dragon thrown out from it on either side below an admirably sculptured oak tree fills the centre of the field beneath it is the death of abel abel lying dead upon his face on one side cain opposite looking up to heaven in terror the border of the arch is formed of various leafage alternating with the scarlet shield and the cusps are each filled by one flower and two broad flowing leaves the whole is exquisitely relieved by colour the ground being of pale red verona marble and the statues and foliage of white carrara marble inlaid the figure below it b represents the southern lateral door of the principal church in abbeville the smallness of the scale compelled me to make it somewhat heavier in the lines of its traceries than it is in reality but the door itself is one of the most exquisite pieces of flamboyant gothic in the world and it is interesting to see the shield introduced here at the point of the gable in exactly the same manner as in the upper example and with precisely the same purpose to stay the eye in its ascent and to keep it from being offended by the sharp point of the gable the reversed angle of the shield being so energetic as completely to balance the upward tendency of the great convergent lines it will be seen however as this example is studied that its other decorations are altogether different from those of the veronese tomb that here the whole effect is dependent on mere multiplications of similar lines of tracery sculpture being hardly introduced except in the seated statue under the central niche and formerly in groups filling the shadowy hollows under the small niches in the archivolt but broken away in the revolution and if now we turn to plate twelve just past and examine the heads of the two lateral niches there given from each of these monuments on a larger scale the contrast will be yet more apparent the one from abbeville figure five 
though it contains much floral work of the crisp northern kind in its finial and crockets yet depends for all its effect on the various patterns of foliation with which its spaces are filled and it is so cut through and through that it is hardly stronger than a piece of lace whereas the pinnacle from verona depends for its effect on one broad mass of shadow boldly shaping into the trefoil in its bearing arch and there is no other trefoil on that side of the niche all the rest of its decoration is floral or by almonds and bosses and its surface of stone is unpierced and kept in broad light and the mass of it thick and strong enough to stand for as many more centuries as it has already stood scathless in the open streets of verona the figures three and four above each niche show how the same principles are carried out into the smallest details of the two edifices three being the moulding which borders the gable at abbeville and four that in the same position at verona and as thus in all cases the distinction in their treatment remains the same the one attracting the eye to broad sculptured surfaces the other to involutions of intricate lines i shall hereafter characterize the two schools whenever i have occasion to refer to them the one as surface gothic the other as linear gothic now observe is it not at present the question whether the form of the veronese niche and the design of its flower work be as good as they might have been but simply which of the two architectural principles is the greater and better and this we cannot hesitate for an instant in deciding the veronese gothic is strong in its masonry simple in its masses but perpetual in its variety the late french gothic is weak in masonry broken in mass and repeats the same idea continually it is very beautiful but the italian gothic is the nobler style yet in saying that the french gothic repeats one idea i mean merely that it depends too much upon the foliation of its traceries the disposition of the traceries themselves is endlessly varied and inventive and indeed the mind of the french workman was perhaps even richer in fancy than that of the italian only he had been taught a less noble style this is especially to be remembered with respect to the subordination of figure sculpture above noticed as characteristic of the later gothic it is not that such sculpture is wanting on the contrary it is often worked into richer groups and carried out with a perfection of execution far greater than those which adorn the earlier buildings but in the early work it is vigorous prominent and essential to the beauty of the whole in the later work it is enfeebled and shrouded in the veil of tracery from which it may often be removed with little harm to the general effect now the reader may rest assured that no principle of art is more absolute than this that a composition from which anything can be removed without doing mischief is always so far forth inferior on this ground therefore if on no other there can be no question for a moment which of the two schools is the greater although there are many most noble works in the french traceried gothic having a sublimity of their own dependent on their extreme richness and grace of line and for which we may be most grateful to their builders and indeed the superiority of the surface gothic cannot be completely felt 
until we compare it with the more degraded linear schools, as, for instance, with our own English perpendicular. The ornaments of the Veronese niche, which we have used for our example, are by no means among the best of their schools, yet they will serve our purpose for such a comparison. That of its pinnacle is composed of a single upright flowering plant, of which the stem shoots up through the centres of the leaves and bears a pendant blossom somewhat like that of the imperial lily. The leaves are thrown back from the stem with singular grace and freedom, and foreshortened, as if by a skilful painter, in the shallow marble relief. Their arrangement is roughly shown in the little woodcut at the side, figure 20, and if the reader will simply try the experiment for himself, first of covering a piece of paper with crossed lines, as if for accounts, and filling all the interstices with any foliation that comes into his head, as in figure 19, above, and then of trying to fill the point of a gable with a piece of leafage like that in figure 20, above, putting the figure itself aside. He will probably find that more thought and invention are required to design this singular minute pinnacle than to cover acres of ground with English perpendicular. We have now, I believe, obtained a sufficiently accurate knowledge both of the spirit and form of Gothic architecture, but it may perhaps be useful to the general reader if, in conclusion, I set down a few plain and practical rules for determining, in every instance, whether a given building be good Gothic or not, and, if not Gothic, whether its architecture is of a kind which will probably reward the pains of careful examination. First, look if the roof rises in a steep gable, high above the walls. If it does not do this, there is something wrong. The building is not quite pure Gothic, or has been altered. Secondly, look if the principal windows and doors have pointed arches with gables over them. If not pointed arches, the building is not Gothic. If they have not any gables over them, it is either not pure, or not first-rate. If, however, it has the steep roof, the pointed arch and gable all united, it is nearly certain to be a Gothic building of a very fine time. Thirdly, look if the arches are cusped or apertures foliated. If the building has met the first two conditions, it is sure to be foliated somewhere. But, if not everywhere, the parts which are unfoliated are imperfect, unless they are large bearing arches, or small and sharp arches in groups, forming a kind of foliation by their own multiplicity, and relieved by sculpture and rich mouldings. The upper windows, for instance, in the east end of Westminster Abbey, are imperfect for want of foliation. If there be no foliation anywhere, the building is assuredly imperfect Gothic. Fourthly, if the building meets all the first three conditions, look if its arches in general, whether of windows and doors, are of minor ornamentation, are carried on true shafts with bases and capitals. If they are, then the building is assuredly of the finest Gothic style. It may still perhaps be an imitation, a feeble copy, or a bad example of a noble style. But the manner of it, having met all these four conditions, is assuredly first-rate. If its apertures have not shafts and capitals, 
look if they are plain openings in the walls studiously simple and unmoulded at the sides as for instance the arch in plate nineteen volume one if so the building may still be of the finest gothic adapted to some domestic or military service but if the sides of the window be moulded and yet there are no capitals at the spring of the arch it is assuredly of an inferior school this is all that is necessary to determine whether the building be of a fine gothic style the next tests to be applied are in order to discover whether it be good architecture or not for it may be very impure gothic and yet very noble architecture or it may be very pure gothic and yet if a copy or originally raised by an ungifted builder very bad architecture if it belong to any of the great schools of colour its criticism becomes as complicated and needs as much care as that of a piece of music and no general rules for it can be given but if not first see if it looks as if it had been built by strong men if it has the sort of roughness and largeness and nonchalance mixed in places with the exquisite tenderness which seems always to be the sign manual of the broad vision and massy power of men who can see past the work they are doing and betray here and there something like disdain for it if the building has this character it is much already in its favour it will go hard but it proves a noble one if it has not this but is altogether accurate minute and scrupulous in its very workmanship it must belong to either the very best or the very worst of schools the very best in which exquisite design is wrought out with untiring and conscientious care as in the giottesque gothic or the very worst in which mechanism has taken the place of design it is more likely in general that it should belong to the worst than the best so that on the whole very accurate workmanship is to be esteemed a bad sign and if there is nothing remarkable about the building but its precision it may be passed at once with contempt secondly observe if it be irregular its different parts fitting themselves to different purposes no one caring what becomes of them so that they do their work if one part always answers accurately to another part it is sure to be a bad building and the greater and more conspicuous the irregularities the greater chances are that it is a good one for instance in the ducal palace of which a rough woodcut is given in chapter eight the general idea is sternly symmetrical but two windows are lower than the rest of the six and if the reader will count the arches of the small arcade as far as to the great balcony he will find it is not in the centre but set to the right-hand side by the whole width of one of those arches we may be pretty sure that the building is a good one none but a master of his craft would have ventured to do this thirdly observe if all the traceries capitals and other ornaments are of perpetually varied design if not the work is assuredly bad lastly read the sculpture preparatory to reading it you will have to discover whether it is legible and if legible it is nearly certain to be worth reading on a good building the sculpture is always so set 
and on such a scale that at the ordinary distance from which the edifice is seen, the sculpture shall be thoroughly intelligible and interesting. In order to accomplish this, the uppermost statues will be ten or twelve feet high, and the upper ornamentation will be colossal, increasing in fineness as it descends, till on the foundation it will often be wrought as if for a precious cabinet in a king's chamber. But the spectator will not notice that the upper sculptures are colossal. He will merely feel that he can see them plainly, and make them all out at his ease. And having ascertained this, let him set himself to read them. Thenceforward the criticism of the building is to be conducted precisely on the same principles as that of a book, and must depend on the knowledge, feeling, and not a little on the industry and perseverance of the reader, whether, even in the case of the best works, he either perceives them to be great, or feel them to be entertaining. End of chapter 6, part 6 End of chapter 6